I'm Tia. I'm Lauren. And this is the Journey to Transformation. Hello. Hi, it's been a while. It's been a while. It's been like a month and a half. Yeah, but we've been on a break. Mm-hmm. We've been busy. We've been busy recently. So we presented at the UK Evaluation Society Conference some knowledge and experience about our feminist approaches and how we apply them. But I just want to say I am really proud of us. For me, doing that personally was like a really big goal in my, you know, geeky monitoring evaluation career. If you've listened to any past episodes, you know I geek out a bit about that shit. It's actually kind of a big goal for me that someone actually she wants to listen <laughs> to what I have to say about evaluations like whoa yeah like 30 people like, wanted to listen to you yeah and maybe other people afterwards I don't know and whoever's listening to this I mean I'm really proud of us because I think it happened really quickly I think it cemented that what we've got to say people want to listen and cemented us a little bit in the space that we're trying to go into right Many of you know we are promoting feminist approaches to evaluation, long-term learning partnerships, and yeah, challenging the way monitoring and evaluation is done, really. Yeah, I mean, to what extent are we even championing feminist approaches versus just be feminists? Yeah, that's a really good point. We often have this debate, is being feminist, I mean, it kind of reminds me of something that was said today on a masterclass you were watching. Oh, with Gloria Steinem. Yes. We only need to say feminist because it doesn't exist. Uh, you know, it, it, no, what did she say? Sorry, I'm not articulating it very well. It's basically like, it's not the universal experience, so we have to punctuate it, which I think is a really good way of explaining why, because I'm often on the camp of why do we have to say that it's feminist? Right. And I think that's a reminder for all of the reasons why we have to punctuate things. You know, we have to say that this is a marginalized community. And I think that's a good example. But we have to say that this is a refugee population, maybe. There's a reason why we have to punctuate certain things if we're championing it and it's not a universal experience. But then I suppose my question is, if everything becomes a universal experience, then are those unique experiences, can they ever become a universal experience? Can all of those what? things ever can all of those things ever just become if you said there's a person? Or do you lose Okay, take one step back because we're kind of blending two yes. things together. Sorry, I'm so, going deep too soon. So <laughs> This is X rated. <laughs> this is called the after hours show. I'm sorry everyone. <laughs> we were gonna use this as like a launching pad for our <laughs> I'm so sorry, I took the tone down. Let's start again. I failed miserably. Ignore that deep dive. Let's go from the beginning. I've already introduced this. So so what did we talk about at the UK Evaluation Society? No, conference? I think you should keep all that stuff in, right? I think because it's funny, because normally it's me doing it. So yeah. it's pretty funny. I think what you're describing before is this conversation of you never have to say white man. The yes. assumption is that when you say man, the picture in your head is a white man. And there Therefore, whiteness and manness is the universal experience. Right. And so if we're going to do it that way, then we have to do it with everything. So we have to describe everything as it is. So if you're going to say, oh, that black doctor, you're going to also need to say, and that white doctor. Right. They described it as, oh my gosh, I just had a thought and it just completely left me. That was the weirdest thing. I don't know. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> I've just got this like brain, like it's all bubbling up and it's all trying to spill over. And it, It's because all the blood is rushing to your conference <laughs> boner. <laughs> yeah, the moment I was like, evaluate I'm proud. I just completely lost control. I'd also listeners like to tell you that the van is at an angle. So I wonder if also I'm losing blood. <laughs> anyway, no, that's not happening. Don't call for, an ambulance. I'm absolutely fine. For those of you who don't know what she's talking about, we record these podcast episodes in a van 
And the streets aren't always flat. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> it will come to you. <laughs> yeah. So what do we talk about? So we talked about negotiating feminist principles approaches across complex contexts. Yeah. And the debate we had was what's a complex context? Yeah. Well, like, well. is not everything complex? Yeah. Is everything not feminist and is everything not complex? <laughs> so we're really just presenting the same old in a different way. But arguably, isn't taking a feminist approach or adopting feminist principles part of what makes it complex? Boom! <laughs> Take that, motherfuckers. Today's episode is us presenting back to you all of the bits we discussed. And if you missed it, this is your opportunity to catch up. For you cheapskates who didn't want to pay for it, here it is for free. Woo! Yeah, say like, hack the system. Yeah, we want you to have this for free. Yes, anyone? it's important. Anyway. So we're going to be discussing the ethical dilemmas that we've come across in applying feminist principles, the trade-offs, the tensions, all sorts of things that we've discussed and trying to apply these in complex contexts, but also then share with you some strategies that we've come across in trying to do that. So I guess the preface here is that we don't have all the answers, but we found some ways to navigate and negotiate this. And we'd like to share with you what that looks like. I don't want to be an asshole, but I just need to stop you here. Preface. Yeah, what does preface mean? Preface. Preface. <laughs> <laughs> so when we're talking about feminist approaches, what we're talking about is the uncomfortable exercise of constant self-reflection and critique. So imagine me and Tia, anyone we're working with, coming together and reflecting on all the time, how are we feeling? What is it looking like? Really talking about those ethical dilemmas. And for us, it's not a problem and solution exercise, but a constant navigation and negotiation. So we're not going into it saying, here's the problem, we need a solution, but continuing to reflect on ourselves, our positionality, our power in the spaces that we're working in. It's basically like living in a state of chronic doubt. That's a really good way to put it. Why are we doing it this way? What yeah. does it mean if we're doing it this way? Is this the best way? Is this the most ethical way? Like, yes. It's just constant doubt and question asking and seeking the best solution and best being yes. from as many vantage points as we can find. And through that, being comfortable with the contradictions that arise. Because I think sometimes, especially when you're in the evaluation space, you feel uncomfortable if you come across contradictions or lots of differing perspectives that contradict each other. But that's holding the space for people's unique experiences and that they might contradict each other. I think we're often asked by clients, people we work with, why should we choose a feminist approach? Like, why should we go with you and your feminist approach over perhaps another one or another style of evaluation? But for us, it's not a choice. And, and if you're asking that, there's already a misunderstanding about how it's integrated into evaluative practice. Participation, including marginalized voices, people with lived experience, it's not a choice. For us, that's a necessity. What are you going to say? I want less participation. Yeah. I would rather exclude marginalized voices. Like, yeah. <laughs> or I don't want to understand all the power that I'm holding. Yeah. I don't want to be culturally inclusive. Yeah. <laughs> I'd mean, rather not, thanks. Yeah, we haven't come across that directly, explicitly. Yeah, we've come across that. <laughs> I wonder if we need to create like a log of where implicit ways of saying, no, I don't want to be participatory. Yeah, tell me. Here's tell, the red flags. <laughs> tell me you uphold the patriarchy and white supremacy without telling me you do. Exactly. A feminist approach is critical. Why? 
Point one, we are navigating complex environments. Organizations are moving beyond this narrow assessment of their performance as an organization. What change did we make? What was our added value? And they're moving towards looking for a better, more nuanced understanding of where they fit into complex social relationships. And a feminist approach gives us that. It gives us these opportunities to look at complexity. It gives us these opportunities to dig deep. We get this better understanding for example, of complex gender and power dynamics, social structures, varying experiences and the needs of different groups. That's what a feminist approach gives us when we do it in a way that's deliberate and considered. So in terms of being able to examine root causes, for example, we get to that closer and more authentically in our experience than if we gloss over these things by, for example, Mm. not including people and not focusing on equity in our conversations. We also build these dynamics that are much more welcoming and inviting of complexity because Mm. we're deliberately trying to include people. Absolutely. Another area and another reason why feminist approaches are essential from our perspective and from many people's perspective, not just (laughs) is this emphasis on equity. There's been a real shift in our social consciousness away from equality where everybody gets the same thing and more toward equity, which is a recognition that everybody has different circumstances and their needs might be different in order to reach equality of opportunity and resources. And feminist approaches emphasize equity. They place a real strong value on examining, assessing, addressing, particularly through an intersectional lens, the multiple inequalities that an individual might face. Another reason why feminist approaches are essential is that we as evaluators and external entities, I would say, are moving away from this idea that we're just going to be these objective fucking robots operating in this space and not influencing anything. I think we're done with that conversation of, oh, we're just here on the margins and we don't influence anything. But particularly for us, for Lord and myself, we fundamentally believe that we are instruments of change. We can balance objectivity, subjectivity, inclusion of different voices, plurality of experience and perspective with our ambition to advance social justice. We can be activists at heart, And we can conceive of our work as activism in itself. A feminist approach reinforces that dynamic. It's an important, critical part that what we do is about advancing social justice. I mean, in some ways, it's also acknowledging that evaluation is part of that bigger justice drive, right? Rather than treating it as a, a, as this thing on the outside, it actually is part of that whole system of change. And it's motivational. We are all activists on the inside, at least some of us. I mean, how much better is it if you say, I do this, we all know, you do your evaluation, you write your report, it dies a slow death on a shelf, and two people read it because they have to read it to sign off on your check, right? Like... <laughs> But how much better is it and how much more motivational is it is if you look at the work that you're doing, every part of the project that you're touching as a way to make the universe and the ecosystem that touches that project better. Absolutely. And this is why we have to also think of it as a process rather than just an end product. It's that kind of rush to get these recommendations or these findings and that people don't even use, but there's this rush to get this end product. That's what we're waiting for. But the process in of itself is a way to bring people together, to learn from the ways of doing an evaluation, talking, bringing reflections together. It's the process that allows us to get to advancing social justice, not just the end product. In fairness, 
Yes, I am sometimes rushing to get to the end of projects because I'm <laughs> about done with some of these people. <laughs> Kidding, I love you all more or less the same. Honest truth, feminist approaches are honest. Another one that's essential is confronting bias and l- unlearning. Learning to unlearn. And I think this is really hard because we need to also through the feminist approach create space for us to say, okay, maybe my biases are influencing how I'm looking at this evaluation or this data or this engagement and bringing awareness to that. And I think the word confront is really quite similar to the feeling you might get when you realize that actually you do have these biases and they are influencing the way you're looking at things. And that's where a lot through this discussion we talk about creating space to have those conversations and to be open to people identifying your biases perhaps sometimes somebody outside of you can see it clearer than you so being open and receptive to someone saying I think you have a bias and potentially you're looking at this in a certain way because of x or because of whatever you know yeah but it's hard and it hurts right it's hard and it hurts when somebody confronts you with your bias I think this is especially true for like well-intentioned liberal white women. You guys just don't like take me. it well. Yeah. <laughs> totally agree. You don't take it yeah, well. Yeah. I mean, you exactly. It hurts. It's because you motherfuckers think you're better than you are. Oh, <laughs> painful. <laughs> so these are why we think feminist approaches are essential. But we want to go into a little bit more detail now and share with you some of the principles that we've navigated. We'll go into each one, talk a little bit about the dilemmas that we faced. And again, that these are reflecting the data feminism principles by Catherine Dignazio and Lauren Klein, which we found very influential and inspiring in our work. Yeah, read that book. It's got pictures in it too. So Great visuals. So the first one or the first principle is examining power. Examining power for us is through pausing and reflecting again on our own biases, but also a bit deeper than that. Who is excluded at every phase of the evaluation and how are we perpetuating that? exclusion. It's taking this phase to examine who is excluded at every stage. However, that also requires time. It requires a conscious effort to do that frequently because I think something we often neglect to consider is that people's power and who has it and who doesn't have it, positive or negative, might change as projects evolve, as contexts change and how those things interact. How often do we go back and examine those relationships and how they develop through an evaluation process? A lot of trust building happens in an evaluation process does that change the power dynamics in any way and a dilemma exists in us leading this line of questioning unearthing examining not just visible but hidden power there's things there that maybe are less visible to us that we're uncovering and bring clients and other stakeholders along with us on that journey if you go to someone and say i'm here to examine power <laughs> it can be a little unsettling and also confronting for people so there's a dilemma there in managing those relationships but also making sure again, that we're looking at the structural privilege and oppression that exists across an evaluation. It's the agonizing exercise of watching, of observing, because for me, that is where I see most. Like I often find that people will tell me all kinds of lovely fucking bullshit about how feminist they are and they're feminist leaders and like feminist leadership didn't exist until I showed up. But then you look, you just quietly look and observe nonverbal cues or who speaks first, how long they're speaking for, just all these different things. Just the process of looking is so fucking uncomfortable because 
everything you see, it just makes everything feel like a lie sometimes. I don't want to get too pessimistic, folks. But (laughs) But this is a really good point because I think people don't realize how much they're telling their story through the most unexpected places. So their stories of power are told in how they write emails, how often they send those emails, how they invite you to interview, when they invite you to interview. So many ways is their story of power and how they tell it. Yeah. It's told to us. And I know people are swinging their big dicks around when we ask them about anonymity in the report and they're like no you can use my name and my title that's fine Mm. and then you've got other people who are like "Mm, can i just see what you write first and then decide how i want to be how i want quotes attributed to me yeah you can see that where power is situated even in decisions like that Absolutely. And I think this is a really fantastic feminist lesson for us is that you can examine power in the most unexpected places. Yeah. All you have to do is look. People are showing you everything you need to see. Where power is situated, who decides who is in charge of what. Look, listen, it's all there. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think this is a nice segue to the second principle, which is on challenging power. So we're going from examining it to then actually challenging it and there's a question here about the role of the evaluator in that so it's really who is challenging power there is something there to like who is the one seeing power and then who is the one challenging it and how that can be unsettling for the relationships that already exist there so for example we've evaluated also large partnerships where there's been a lot of civil society organizations that come together over a long period of time and build trust and and relationships and then we are going in there to to challenge power and it's a, a tension between not disrupting the relationships that have already been built and already exist and eroding trust or reinforcing assumptions that I as a white woman might carry and assuming that my interpretation of the power there is is incorrect or is negative and that might not be the case for everybody so there's a bit of a tension there in how we place ourselves sort of as evaluators yeah it's a really fine line between not wanting to erode trust but wanting to disrupt power. Absolutely. Because I would say that in everything that we do, we are in fact trying to disrupt problematic power dynamics. And then here comes the doubt is what is our role in disrupting that? And should we be? But if we say first and foremost, when we see harm, we call out harm. So we just mention, we just punctuate the moment and identify and point to it. But even that can be very uncomfortable and awkward. I think for us, the position that we've taken is making our curiosity known. So for example, why is it this way? I'm not stating my opinion. I'm just demonstrating that I'm curious about why you do this stupid, despicable, not despicable. Well, why, you know, why (laughs) you do this thing? Why are you doing this thing? I'm not giving you a judgment. And I often say there's no judgment here. I'm just coming at you with some curiosity about why this is the way that it is. I think that's a really good way and a good piece of advice and and learning for how to do it in a way that builds on curiosity rather than like a direct, you know. The subtext is stop doing that fucking stupid thing. Sure, but. You know, people don't pick up on subtext. Not always. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I had a thought around you said if we see harm, then we have to call it out. How far do you go in thinking about I'm going to call out that harm, but I don't know the consequence of me calling out that harm or what might happen after I've left? So let's say you call out harm. You say there's a lot of power, negative power structure in this consortium and it kind of causes that relationships to erode and actually you leave it worse off than when you were not there 
Like, like I don't know. I'm maybe going too far down the road, but yeah. I mean, um, I do think this is a really hard. This is the doubt creeping yeah. in. Should we say anything? What if we make it worse? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're only there for a short period of time. Yeah, yeah like yeah. like that is the complicated dynamic. But if we don't say anything, then nobody knows that somebody's seen. Yeah. And then there is no opportunity for people to learn and to to do something different or to think in a different way. So even by posing the question, perhaps it might disrupt something within the relationships. But I I think you have to give everybody an opportunity to try and think about something from a different perspective. Yeah. Then if you don't say anything at all, then there's no opportunity to see something from the outside lens. We're not necessarily saying that the way we see it is right, right? Because when we talk about cultural inclusivity, we need to appreciate that there are lots of different experiences, like plurality is another thing that we're going to talk about in a little bit. Multiple voices, multiple perspectives, cultural context matters. All of these things matter. We're just throwing something from the side, from our vantage point into the mix so that can be part of the calculation. We're not necessarily saying it's right, though most of the time I'm right. (laughs) But we are saying... You heard it here first. (laughs) If you're a regular listener, you've heard it many times. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But like we're just saying, here's a thing to notice. And what happens if you notice that? Like, Mm. is this a little ripple? You know, is this a pebble in the ocean? Or is it something that maybe just gets one person to think about it slightly differently? And yes, anytime you're you're looking at relationships and relational dynamics, there is always the potential for something to disrupt them. But that's not always a bad thing in the long term. Yeah, I think there's a really, it's a really great kind of image in my head now around starting that ripple maybe the role of the evaluator is to start that ripple you know wherever it goes the role is you see it you say it and you let it go see it say it sort it what have we done say something we did see that comment on the bus sorry there was an advert on the bus that said it won't get worse if you say or something no harm will come to you (laughs) yeah there's advice everywhere maybe that's the slogan we should use (laughs) it won't get worse but but it's something it's a perspective issue right like we think they're pebbles in the ocean but to your point (laughs) some people think what we've launched is a stick of dynamite yeah yeah you're right you're right okay so but it's still i still i still maintain the point is that you can't think so far down the line that you might if the if the dynamic is so fragile that noticing and questioning and coming at at the dynamic with curiosity is going to destabilize that relationship it probably wasn't that good anyways yeah and it says a lot about the space that is able to hold that safely yeah right and so relationship can't handle a little flirtation probably not that stable anyway (laughs) okay let's not deviate It's a relevant analogy. (laughs) So third principle is on human experience. And we're talking about a dilemma where there's a tension between conventional evaluative rigor and the fluidity of human experience. So can I advance social justice that we talked about earlier? elevate the emotion of human experience, which as we know is complicated and still maintain a good high quality evaluation if there's less uniformity in human experience. So I guess what we mean by that is can we put frameworks and criteria over some people's perceptions, beliefs, knowledge, attitudes when they're all very different? 
how do these two things meet? And we've got a really good example of this where we proposed a methodology for a client. We said, you know, I think a realist evaluation might be good. We can look at the different contexts, how their programming is shaped by the context and so on and so on. But we started the contract. We went in and we found an organization that was in a bit of trauma, was having a really hard time. And so Tia very helpfully said, you know what? we need to change this methodology. We need to focus on strengths. We need to focus on motivating, uplifting things. We need to take this organization with us and respect where they are, their emotional experience. And so we shifted to appreciative inquiry. And so for us, it's about acknowledging that there is a human experience here and methodologies, frameworks, criteria can't just be placed over the top of that. And we have to just adapt, you know, we need to adapt and really elevate those emotions and human experience. And so for us, this is a tension we come across quite often in terms of being that kind of technical, methodological focused piece versus leading with human experience. The second we lose our ability to remember that we're interacting with human people, that's when you should stop this work. Yeah. Because I do think that there is a tendency to view people who work in m and I'm not really an m and person. Monitoring and Surprise. evaluation. People who work in monitoring and evaluation. When I first met Lauren, I was like, you're just a disgusting numbers robot <laughs> and you don't care about anything. Stop it. <laughs> but like, there's this thing about when we talk about evaluative rigor and there's these criteria, we must use these evaluation criteria and we need to do all of these things. Yes, you want to have confidence in the information that you're gathering that it's not so biased. You can't really apply it to anything. You can't understand what to do with it. It's colored through the lens of some somebody else's viewpoint. That's not what we're describing. We're describing the fact, how can your evaluation even scratch the surface on the totality of human experience and how they interact with your single program when you look at the fact that people exist in histories, in generations, right? The existence that I have is not just in this life. It includes the generations that impacted who I am, what I think, what I believe, how those beliefs are formed and how I move through this universe. Put that in an evaluation. How do you do that? Mm. So I think second we forget, the second we move away from respondents and evaluation participants as human beings who are operating and living and existing with a number of different things that have fuck all to do with your evaluation. We need to remember that and we need to hold the space for that. And it's really hard. It's really, really hard. And it exercises muscles that evaluators don't tend to have to exercise, but we should. I totally agree because you're, you know, suddenly asking questions to somebody who be sad, happy, angry, you're not just this data collector, you are facilitating and supporting and comforting somebody in a moment. We were doing the qualitative component and, and another team was doing the quantitative component. We were looking at the questions that they had asked in their survey. And it was like, what do you think of when you hear the sounds of bullets or whatever? It was so intense. And yeah, I was like, so confronting. We are in a space where people are hearing that. One of the researchers that we were working alongside for this project had to stop their data collection because there was a gunfight on the road as they were trying to cross. These are real people's experiences. And I was like, you know, did you modify any of these questions? Like, this doesn't look like it's very trauma informed. Mm. You're asking people questions in a way, in a style that doesn't feel like it's considering that you may re-traumatize people in the process. Yeah. And they had dick all to say about that. <laughs> 
started a ripple. <laughs> <laughs> that was a grenade. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's really important that we look at people as whole people and that we think about how we're interacting with them, not sim- not just as the ethical considerations that we make when we're collecting collecting their data, harvesting their data, which is just disgusting phrasing to me. But when we're thinking about how we understand what that data means and approaching that whole process with humility to say, like, there's no way we can ever really have a completely sterile interpretation of what all of this qualitative and quantitative data means, because it's sitting at the intersection of a countless number of experiences, human experiences. And that just needs to be said. And it's very rarely said. Well said. You heard it here, (laughs) motherfuckers. Okay, moving on. Next. Right. Binaries and hierarchies. So very famously, Joni Seeger, a feminist geographer, said, what gets counted counts. And I think that that is always a really important thing to consider. There is power in deciding what areas you're going to explore and how this is done. And evaluators are often generating or consuming data that reinforces systems of classification that perpetuate Oppression. So, for example, when we think about data that reinforces heteronormativity, Mr., Mrs., Miss. Did you notice I put MX on our UK Evaluation Society Conference thing? We were the only person... Only persons? Only people? <laughs> I am my own person thinking about <laughs> We were the only persons. We were the only people that had MX. Yeah. But I just put it because, you know... Because you know that's right. Yeah. I am a human person in the world who doesn't need to be defined by marital status. It isn't fucking like farming time. <laughs> Like, I know people farm. Yeah. I own my own property. I mean, it's really right. You're right. It's absolutely random to me that we still have Miss, Mrs. and and Mr. and whatever, you know. Why are we still defined by that? You only only get to be different if, like, you are, you have, like, an advanced degree. (laughs) If you've got a doctorate, then you can be a doctor. Or a medical doctor, then you can be a doctor. Or you can be a professor. Oh, right. You can be a reverend. Okay. I can get you ordained online if you want, and you can be a reverend. Okay, that could work, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I could, could do that instead. Like, we are defined by all of these things that I don't understand why we're defining ourselves by these yeah. things. Like, why do I need to put Miss on the UK Evaluation Society conference? What does that matter? Yeah, it's <laughs> like people are like, Miss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That's not how that happens. Like, we're not, we don't do that anymore. Yeah. You're definitely not a miss, though. I'm an MX. You're a spinster. (laughs) (laughs) Rude. (laughs) Yeah, another one, gender binaries. Right, so we had a whole, we had a whole episode of the podcast a while ago where we were talking about gender binaries and in terms of data collection, this kind of confusion between gender and sex. So sex disaggregated data, gender disaggregated data. There are thousands upon thousands of different gender identities, gender identity, sexual expression, sexual orientation and identity. Like this is an area not to be confused. I didn't tell you about this. Tell. So I was looking at a survey, this organization that we were doing a project with. They were so excited. And they're like, we did this survey and we're so happy. We want to really hear about like these outcomes and like how people are experiencing the services that we do. Yada, yada, yada. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I was like, can you send me the survey? And they're like, yeah, they sent me the survey. And the first question is, what's your gender? Male, female, member of the LGBTQ community? And I was like, wait. What? <laughs> I was like, you guys have mixed this uh, up. No. I was like, you took a few things and smash them into one which makes 
<laughs> me feel like you don't know what's going on. Mm, my sexual orientation <laughs> and I'm female. Yeah. I was like, first off, you're going to be... What? <laughs> okay. So oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. So things like that, where they're reinforcing this classification that either means that some communities are further marginalized, they become more invisible and excluded. Thinking about ways that you're not reinforcing binaries or hierarchies inadvertently in your work. And, and feminist principles by giving us a focus on dismantling this system. We have a principle that we can fall back on that helps us to navigate and to identify more clearly when these things pop up for us. Okay, moving on. Pluralism. So for us, we try and design our evaluations for diverse knowledge, for diverse stakeholders, but we often find ourselves negotiating with the gatekeepers of knowledge. Tia coined the term well-intentioned gatekeepers a few years ago. When we're saying gatekeepers, we're generally meaning client, donors, community leaders, authorities, someone who holds that door to you being able to see what's going on. Generally, they might have some documents or something and they're saying they're allowing you into that space, allowing you to see that knowledge. And as external evaluators, we often have to rely on these people to, to open those doors for us and say, oh, there's something over here you need to look at or something over there. And there's a real kind of power dynamic in that. And how do we not center and challenge that person who is guiding where we look when it comes to knowledge and also challenge that to look at the multiple perspectives, experiences, different ways of knowing. We've often looked at storage places of documents or where people file all their guides and toolkits and it's all in English and it's all 30 pages long. And is this everything? How, how do we sort of diversify that? And we have to design with that diversity in mind right from the beginning. And I think there's almost some strategy building there that we often don't do. Like if we're not finding the unusual, what do we need to do in order to get to that point? Diversity doesn't need to be unusual. Yes, sorry. No, I guess I'm also... If we're not bringing in you fucking weirdos, then... (laughs) I guess what I mean is stepping outside of the norm of a 30-page document in English, which we often get thrown at. You need to reframe what you believe normal is. That is very true. making it sound like anything that isn't that... That is very true. You're a little racist. Uh, So... (laughs) Can you hear her discomfort having her bias challenged? She's challenged my biases. (laughs) You better start on learning. (laughs) I am. I am. Something else that I think might help there is an approach called a bricolage approach, which means instead of just using one method or one way of gathering information, you pull from different kinds of methods and ways of, of gathering information. But yeah. The space where I see this being the most problematic is when we talk about participatory action research. And we talk about, uh, one, we talk about having program participants evaluate the program. Yeah. Two, when we talk about that being a compensated approach. And so what happens is we often get this pushback when we say, okay, so what do you think the criteria for selection should be? Like, let's design this together. And they'll often say, well, they have to have a degree. They have to have done ME for monitoring and evaluation for at least six years. Maybe if they have a PhD, that's better. And it's this conversation where we're like, yes, we know you pay us as consultants to come in and facilitate this process for you, but nothing that we do is special and requires a unique type of knowledge that other people are not able to attain create or generate 
right? Mm. Like there is always this willingness to hear from a diverse group of voices and have those voices assess you because there is a feeling that you must have a certain degree of education to be able to say whether something fucking sucks or not. Yeah, like, yeah, right. There's a real line that we haven't yet crossed. So we're okay. <laughs> and I'm really generalizing here. There's air quotes. People. Air quotes. I'm really generalizing. We're okay to have a wide group of stakeholders that we that are interviewed and like anonymized and that information comes into an evaluation. But we're not okay to then take that to the level of their deciding everything and looking at you from the lens of us as evaluators. Yeah. And they really feel really fucking uncomfortable when yeah, you start picking f- people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You should feel the tension in the room. Yeah. Especially <laughs> I'm sorry, what? It's it's basically like like when people ask for references. If I ask you for references, you're gonna give me people who will have generally nice things to say about you. Absolutely, I will. Why are you gonna pick people? That's why I think we should do LinkedIn roulette, where you just scroll through somebody's <laughs> LinkedIn and you message that person and say, "Tell me about this person. What's your impression?" <laughs> They'll be like, "I don't know who they are." It's random, like random scroll through, or anybody who's like a first connection, mm. just random. See what happens. Because maybe you get an old boss who's not so keen. Yeah, yeah. It's a good shout. Sell that to LinkedIn. LinkedIn roulette. I feel like this might be a really good idea, though. I think you might need to sell it to them. <laughs> Trademark. We did an evaluation. We said, yeah, we so we interviewed the people that you gave us. And then we also interviewed some people that you didn't give us. They were like, well, <laughs> but how, was, how did you do that? I was like, because we're fucking magic. Yeah. How did we're you find magic these people? Motherfuckers. <laughs> like, what do you think? We things don't exist on an island. Yeah. <laughs> there are not 38 people in the world. Like, <laughs> you're working in a pretty massive space. We know a ton of people. And mm. We've done a bunch of projects on this particular thematic area. Yeah, yeah. So we reached out some people so, to get some impressions. So actually, you're benefiting from our network. Yeah. That's swipe. It's a bit like secret shopping, you know? <gasps> You, Which I've always said we should do secret shopping. Donors hire us to go in and secret shop your mystery organization. shoppers. Mystery shoppers. Yeah. That's what we should do. I'm not sure that it's massively ethical, but we should do it. I'm just picturing you trying to put like never been kissed, where Drew Barrymore pretends like she's a teenager. Yeah. In high school. Like I'm trying to picture you doing that. I used to be really I'm good a at- disenfranchised youth. <laughs> I used to be really good at drama at school. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, you're going to have your never been kissed moment where you're trying to like. (laughs) I would very much enjoy being a mystery shopper. Yeah. I'm just saying, there's potential here to expand this idea. Trademark, trademark. Okay. So anyways, this is the space where people get the most anxious because it means there's less control over the message. Everybody else can kind of get behind the other ones. But the second we're like more voices, more people, less control over you selecting the people. We want the sample. We want to establish a sample that supports the rigor of the evaluation. Like We're not talking about, you know, doing something completely wild and there's zero rationale for it. For me, this is where people's biases show up the strongest when it comes to what you said around experience. Mm. Because on the one hand, we're okay going in and being like, oh, the communities should draw or they could do this fun, visual, creative thing. And we're okay that, but we're not okay then stepping up and having them decide how to evaluate, what to evaluate and be the evaluator. There's a real bias and racist, racist attitude in that. Yeah. It's okay that they can draw a picture, but they can't step up and evaluate. Definitely won't pay them. Right. For me, this is where it really shows itself the strongest. Yeah, agreed. So the next one, visible labor. So talking about compensated models and stuff, visible 
labor is perhaps an underexplored discussion or it's a discussion that I find some of the most challenging because you can have these conversations and I did a quick scan of all the the TORs and invitations to tender that we had submitted recently and now we really want a participatory approach we want to really be inclusive of all these communities but the second you ask them to pony up some money to compensate those people for the burdens of their participation they shit the pants (laughs) so like That doesn't feel like an ethical dilemma for me. It feels like an ethical dilemma for them. (laughs) Yes. If you know it's going to take time, if you know it's going to be a burden, but if you think it's important, you need to pay for it. And we have only worked with one organization where they were like, yes, we're going to pay for it. In fairness, they did say you need to pay for half of it out of your budget and we'll pay for the other half, which we did because we thought it was important. It's a complicated dynamic, right? You want to make sure that the way that you're compensating communities and compensating evaluation participants is ethical, doesn't reinforce conflict dynamics because you're giving some people money in some cases over others. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to figure out what that could be because there's so many different ways you can do it. It can be things in kind. It can be courses. It doesn't necessarily have to be cash. It can be so many different things that are of value. It's a recognition that what somebody has done and provided in terms of their information and their insight is of value to you. And it took time that they will never get back from their single life on this planet unless they believe in reincarnation. That's it. That's all they get. Yeah. And I I remember you, if you recall, or listeners, if you've been listening to us for a while, we've been having conversations around what you call a beneficiary or what you call a community member. And you liked the one client. And I've seen that actually in in someone's terms of reference recently. Mm. And I was like, okay, okay. And if you reframe the communities we work with as a client, then it feels much more natural that they would want to assess and evaluate the people who are delivering services, right? In some ways, it creates a much more like logical process and that you would pay them. They are the client. Yeah, they would receive a monetary benefit for helping you improve your business. Exactly, exactly. So in this way, I might be on board with client. Okay, well, although I'm I did, say it anyway. <laughs> someone had in their terms of references, they said client slash beneficiary. <laughs> it's because they were, they were trying to appeal to people who aren't quite yeah. uh, as au fait as I am. I'm just ahead of time. <laughs> I'm ahead of the times. So yeah, I think it's really important to think about that and to really consider that it takes time, effort, energy for people to participate, especially if you're asking them fucking traumatizing questions. You need to recognize what they've done and what it costs them to be with you for that hour. And it's usually like an hour, an hour and a half, right? Like if somebody asked me to sit down and take an hour of my life to help them improve their business, I tell them to fuck right off or give me half a share. Then I would do that. But that's not free. Time is money. That's life. That's life's energy. And then when we think about the fact that most organizations are working in the same places, interviewing the same people, yeah. you know that that person is going to be interviewed at least three times in a month. Yeah. And I appreciate people who are going to come at me and be like, well, that's how you create like markets around this. And then people are like paid for their participation and you're buying their opinion. I'm not saying you're buying their opinion. I'm saying that you can find a way to compensate people for their time. For example, when I do a survey and they're like, thank you for your time. Here's a five pound gift card to Starbucks. Yeah. Yeah. I used to get sent samples to try. And then you broke out in hives. <laughs> <laughs> complete the survey and tell us what you think about the sample we're sending you yeah i mean it was a benefit is what my point is like there was a benefit to me yeah 
there is something that you get because what you say helps somebody else. Yeah. Otherwise, it's extractive as fuck. Because yeah. all you're doing is taking taking knowledge, harvesting knowledge, other people's data, taking photos of all of these people and slapping it all over your shit and not giving them fuck all for it. Same with researchers or what some people might say is local researchers, which I hate that fucking terminology. But if you're working with a research team, they need to be credited on your publications, right? Bring them into that process. If you are somebody for whom authorship matters to you and publishing matters to you, and there is a very specific realm of the universe where these humans exist who care a lot about that shit, fine. But you need to be crediting people. I was reading an article about how an organization was stole another consultant's work. It's not dissimilar from something that happened with you, where basically like the organization owns the intellectual property that's generated from it. Fine. But then the person who was managing the contract, so managing the consult, took the consultant's work and put it under their name, Ooh. which is different. Yeah. Okay. Not cool. That's not cool at all. We haven't seen that yet. We better not see it. Yeah, because the name will be on this podcast. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah, I'll come after you. <laughs> so, yeah. So making labor visible and identifying and calling it out and acknowledging it. Like sometimes like that is just as meaningful. It's just to say, look, here are the people who contributed to this body of work. Let's just take a minute to recognize that this has value and that you're going to generate value from it. Next one. Context. Data is not neutral. It's not objective. These are the products of inequality and social dynamics. We have to recognize that there is a complicated matrix. And I think it's really important that we consider context. And if we don't, we risk having inaccurate and unethical analysis. The problem is, is that as evaluators, we don't really have a lot of time. We don't have a lot of time to think critically about the complex social dynamics in which the data is born from. And we often find ourselves in a situation where we have to trust the data that may already exist, mm. which I think is OK on one hand. Sure. But I want to understand how it operates in historical, temporal, social, economic climate. The whole of the context, like intergenerational, it all matters. If all of these things matter, then we need to make sure that we're trying our best to explore how our data might be influenced by all of these complex dynamics. Here's the problem. Then you're going to have a context analysis at the top of your evaluation report that is a thousand pages long because you could write a whole book on a single area. People write their pieces. PhD dissertations on single areas of exploration when it comes to understanding the context in, in of a people, of a community, of an individual, of a location, yeah, of a social movement, of a political movement. Like, yeah, you can, this is what people do for the living. I'm not saying we need to try and do this. I'm just saying we cannot unmoor data from what it is born out of, and we just need to recognize that in some way. I think we'll say there's a slight issue sometimes in that the context analysis is at the beginning of a report or is treated as a separate thing. Like here, we've done the context analysis and then here's the evaluation findings. But my question has always been, but how do these two things relate to each other? Sure. And maybe it's more about integrating the context throughout. I had this issue often where I'd be like, you've done this outcome or you've achieved this, is great. But what does that mean for the conflict? Or what does that mean for the context? We just never took it far enough. But I guess that's my point is like, how far can you go right? yeah like how yeah. far can you go but i do think we need to recognize mm -hmm. and say here's a limitation to what you're seeing 
because we cannot possibly scratch the surface yeah. on the depth of what's happening here. This yeah. is a snapshot in time that is basically unattached to anything that might be substantive from a deep cultural level because I only had four weeks to do this evaluation. And I mean, I guess, yeah, I guess that's why scope is so important. Scope, but also, I mean, what I would even be happy with is just people just saying that. Yeah. Like just yeah. saying, like recognizing. Yeah. This is viewed in this way and it's a limitation because I cannot know the depths of the histories that intersect with how all of this, my interpretation of how all this took place. TM, TM, that's going on the start of every single evaluation that we write. Yeah. So those are the ethical dilemmas. Some of the things that we've done to address them. And you'll see by now that this is never ending conversation. Yes. Don't ever let this conversation end. Now, we're going to tell you about some of the strategies. So some of the strategies we use to deploy and embed feminist approaches into the work that we're doing. So we told you about all the shit we have to deal with. And now we're going to tell you about maybe some of the ways that we try to resolve them or square them up or have conversations about them. I think that I find more often than not, I have closure around some of the questions because we create scope around it. Right. Like we (laughs) draw a line under it. That's fair. I know I said line and I'm making a circle, but you know what I mean? So one is reflexivity. It's kind of what we were talking about in the beginning where the, this doubt, staying in doubt. This is about practicing and promoting self-reflection, always looking, always asking questions, right? One of the exercises that we do that we have talked about on this podcast and that we actually have a whole last episode on is the equity pause. The equity pause, we do periodically through our projects, whatever project we're doing, we do it with ourselves. I do it as I'm walking to work. We ask four questions. What perspectives or voices have been or may be excluded? How are or might we reinforce inequalities? How can we move towards more and or improved equity and inclusion? And how can we challenge our assumptions and biases? You can go to some like dark places by accident in some of these questions. We've seen teams go to some like pretty dark places. But it's an important exercise to reflect on and to do periodically because what it does is it gets you to the place where you're looking at yourself and you're looking around your work. It kind of gets you out of this not being able to see the forest for the trees or having such a myopic view on a particular problem that you think you've got the solution there because you you wrote it down in your invitation to tender. So like this is what you need to do. But perhaps there wasn't any space for people to zoom out and say, OK, this is what we're exploring. But does, do these lines of inquiry actually reinforce some harmful assumptions? Yeah. And sometimes you get on that train and it's really hard to stop it or get off. If you're on a project or program that's fast paced and activity, it's donor driven timelines, you know, you're, you're on this train. But this pause is like, hang on a minute, just put your head out the window. And as you say, let, let's talk about it. Yeah, it can feel really violent, though. You know, when we've, yeah. when we've introduced this, giving the analogy of the train, sometimes we've had to push people off the train. Right? Yeah. That's what it feels like, because they're just like, no, we've decided this. Can't remember who it was now, but they were like, we don't want to change the terms of reference. Like, we agreed it, so that's it. Mm. So we don't even want to have a conversation about this. And I was like, no, no, no. We're going to have a conversation about this. Yeah, because so much is misinterpreted. There's an assumption behind the, we don't want it to change, that everyone agrees. How can you know that everyone agrees? We're new to this thing and we're the ones delivering it. 
Sure. Or like if you've got three people who wrote the terms of reference and we're supposed to go to Mogadishu and chat to a whole crew of people, then maybe those crew of people might have some opinions on who's getting left out of the sampling approach. Yes. Just as a very simple example. Or one of the things that always comes up when we do these these activities is who's being left out of this conversation. Former staff. Yeah, that comes up a lot, doesn't it? It comes up a lot. Because they are. Because we're always talking to people who are there who have too much to lose that they can't say shit. My favorite people to fucking talk to are ones who have already given notice. (laughs) They're my favorite. I've done it three times now. It's like always someone with the least tongue. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Because you don't have to do any of the rapport building. They're just like, look, buckle up, motherfucker. And I'm like, yes, I'm ride or die with you right now. Yeah, yeah. It's great. Those are my favorite ones. So that's it. So really practicing, promoting it asking, inviting challenge. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it feels shit. I never like it on the very rare occasion that somebody points out that I'm wrong, but I invite it. (laughs) I think there's something here as well around you have this relationship with the client and there is often, and I see it written around like the client is king. And I think that there's often trying to kind of backpedal a little bit from that. You're stepping forward to challenge that, but they're also paying your salary. We talk about that quite a lot. I mean, in the context of what you said before about talking about beneficiaries as clients, we've kind of... Oh, sorry. Yeah, I've kind of gone back. You created a contradiction. Oh, no. I'm I'm a feminist contradiction. I've often said. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, these are the things that we want to encourage people to do and to think about as like part of their practice and embedded in the way that you work is to be... To, to look at yourself and to invite other people to look at themselves in a way that's healthy. Obviously, you don't want people stewing in self-doubt, hating themselves. But there's a really good opportunity and a really good moment to take the ego out, take the judgment out, and just ask yourself these questions. Because sometimes the answers, the most self-reflective teams have been surprised by the answers and have been motivated by the answers. And that's what you want. Like, that's a really healthy way to do this exercise. Yeah. yeah. Next one, power and positionality. This is about assessing perceptions. Where are we all situated in this thing? This kind of comes along with a conversation about examining challenging power. This is that, right? Really looking at that, really being willing to look at that. I also think the other dimension of it is where we as evaluators sit with the power that we have, right? I often say I became a consultant so employers would listen to me Hmm. because that's basically what it is. Here's a little tip. You'd save a lot of money if you just listen to your employees. It's true. Because that's all we do. We just ask people questions, we consolidate it, and then we spit it out through our very diplomatic language. And employees or staff have been saying it for way longer than we've been there. Yeah. If you just listen to them, you save a lot of money on a day rate because they're already there. So I think we try to use our position to validate people's perceptions as well, which is maybe a little kind of tricky line. There's a tricky needle to thread on this one because some people might say that if you're validating perceptions, you might be inflaming people's viewpoints. And that could be considered like leading them down the answer that they're giving or like getting them to say the answer more confidently. But what I also find is that as an evaluator, we're often in this position where we're hearing multiple people's perspectives. And I do think it can be really helpful and cathartic, like going back to that human experience. I've often had people say to me that it was just so cathartic to talk to you. One, because I'm awesome to talk to you. But also, why did you roll your eyes? (laughs) But it's also because we're creating space for them to offload 
a bunch of stuff. And sometimes it can be so powerful to just say, you're not the only one who feels this way. Yeah. It's like something really switches in people's posture, feeling, like the way that they come off to me. Like it changes when you just say, you're not alone in this feeling. And I think that that part about using the power that we have, using the role that we play as evaluators to validate people's perceptions is something that I quite value. Mm. I'm kind of sick of doing data collection, but that is one part of it that I think is so, so important is how we force the space. We force the door open. I totally agree. And I think for me, power and positionality is, as you say, the acknowledgement that we have power as evaluators, that we're holding the door open for all of that information to fall out. And this is one of the reasons why I got into and championed feminist approaches is because I realized that, as you said with the quote earlier, what what do you decide to count counts? And so you have so much power to say, I'm going to measure this this way and therefore skew everyone's perspective around this measurement that I've decided is important. I mean, do I weight some things based on what I think is important? Sure. Of course. I want to draw attention to certain things. Mm. They're generally things that I think are really harmful. I won't name things because then people will know. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's really important to use the role that we have in the platform that we have to elevate. If we say like our job is to elevate lesser heard voices, then I use that role to do it. So even if one person tells me they're feeling disaffected in their role, they feel stressed, they feel anxious. I'm not going to be like, look, so this person here in this role told me this. What I will say is, I have heard a story of this and I think it's really important for you to know it. They say, if you look after your gear, it will look after you. It's the same with people. You look after your people, they're going to take care of you. For leadership, if there's even one person who feels disaffected and they didn't weren't able to see it because of the distance they have from that person or the role that they play or whatever, or I'm, you know, just uniquely positioned to hear it, then that needs to be heard. Those perceptions must be validated. Bravo. Thank you very much. <laughs> the next strategy is very similar to this, being critical and curious. So it goes back to the question that you asked, you were mentioning earlier around saying, well, why is this happening? And for us, and as Tia mentioned, it's like not placing judgment. It's not explicitly saying, oh my gosh, look at what you're doing over there. It's asking, well, why is that happening? To open the door to that conversation, draw attention to it in a way that you're not destroying relationships, but you're starting that ripple that we talked about earlier. That I think is a really good takeaway, maybe even a tangible takeaway in terms of how the questions you shape around being curious don't have to be harmful and taking that critical and curiosity with you throughout because I think curiosity at least from my perspective doesn't feel as alarming you know it feels like someone's approaching you with curiosity it's warm as you said it's it's approachable rather than throwing something in your face A lot of the organizations that we work with, if you have ever worked with any organization ever on the history of the in the history of the universe, then you know that we institutionalize practice. Mm. So people will often say, we say, well, why do you do that way? Well, we've always done it that way. But why? Just because we've always done it this way doesn't mean you have to keep doing it that way. Yeah. And it's drawing attention to the fact that there are those voices that are the status quo remains. And why is the status quo remaining? And I think there's something as well behind, there's another question here around, well, should it be happening at all? And we often say that in honor of Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park, who questioned whether they should be putting dinosaurs in parks at all. Same thing, you know, why are you doing it? And whatever reason, but should you be doing it? gives people a reason to justify and think about it really deeply yeah okay if you can tell me the name of this book 
I will send you, the first person who can tell me the name of this book, I'll send you 50 pounds. There is a book, and in the book is a story about a, a soldier who stands by a bench. And they have stood by this bench for decades, and it has been a role, so like somebody will leave, or they'll retire, and then they will replace the person who stands at this bench. And nobody has ever really questioned why this soldier is standing by the bench, until one day... Somebody asked and dug into the history of this position. And it happened because one day somebody painted the bench and they didn't want anybody to sit and get paint on them. So they had somebody stationed there to stop that from happening. But then it just continued and nobody asked why. And it just continued to be this role for like decades. If somebody can tell me the book that this story came out of, it's a book of short stories, funny anecdotes like this. First person, 50 pounds. Because I cannot remember the name of this book. Oh, I'm excited. I really hope someone comes through. So yeah, critical, curious. Just because it's happened doesn't mean it always has to happen. And you should ask why it happened in the first place. Exactly. Another strategy is around active participation, the participatory approaches we've been talking about. So we've mentioned a number of times participatory action research and about challenging the relationship on who is making the decisions, who can co-decide the evaluation decision with you, what to evaluate, why it's being evaluated and bringing the beneficiary slash client with you in that co-deciding process. And we've discussed a lot around people's receptions of participatory action research. And you don't have to go all in 100% bringing a community member with you maybe as an evaluator. You could start a little bit. You don't have to push the door wide open and say, we're going to have all these community members as co-evaluators. Actually, you could take a small step forward and say, we'll go to the community and ask them what they think should be evaluated. And, and that's it at that point in time. Sometimes you don't need to open the entire door straight away. It's about like a little bit at a time, getting people feeling uncomfortable with that discomfort, maybe, and then moving forward with it. I think here defining active participation is really, really important because mm. we say we take it to the limit of participatory action research or bust. That's what we want to see because we want to see people engaged in solutioning, evaluating and solutioning for the things that impact their lives, regardless of where you are in the fucking universe. I want to be part of that. It's like when you were saying all of a sudden Citibank was doing some community farm in your in the park across the street from your house. And mm -hmm. you weren't part of that. You weren't like nobody asked you, but probably you would have enjoyed being part of the decision making in that. And then the realization of the solution that you and your neighbors came up with, mm -hmm. right? There's so much more enthusiasm and excitement and ownership that comes in that process. It doesn't need to be at that extreme spectrum if you believe that is extreme. I don't. But I think what you need to do, though, is define what you mean by active participation, what you mean by participation. So there's a few different organizations who have things like participation ladders or participation scales. We know that Amnesty International has got a pretty decent the visual is not great, but the <laughs> articulation of it is is pretty good. And it's a participation lad ladder. They call it a ladder, but it's a scale. I think they might have borrowed it from somebody else. Maybe. I don't know. But anyways, they talk about that quite a lot and where they define what active participation is moving away from the other end, which is just informing people of what's, well, not informing people of what's going on and then informing people and then consulting people and then having them engaged in some parts and then having them actively making decisions about what is happening. Yeah. There's a whole kind of spectrum of what participation looks like if you do nothing else just figure out what it is that you fucking mean by participation because when people are like yeah we want meaningful participation i'm like what does that mean 
Mm. Tell me what that means. When you say meaningful, meaningful to who? When, how, why? <laughs> when, how, why? What, what are we talking about? Yeah. Don't throw out these words to me because they mean nothing. I am critical. I am curious. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me right now. Clearly. Wait, are you a feminist? Finally, adaptability. And for us, this is ensuring that there's space for contextualized amendments. And we're not dependent on that methodological purity. We've decided this is what we're going to do. This is decided this is how we're going to do the evaluation without Again, considering all the human experiences that are interacting with your evaluation and the project or program you're evaluating. And so it's about approaching the evaluation as a process that may be adapted at different points as you go along that journey. We often are required to design something that without even seeing anything without fully understanding how an organization works, how a project or program has worked, what people are involved. And we're required to design a whole structure based on very little quite often. And so going in in that, you know, inception phase and even beyond that, preparing to shift and change substantially if you need to, because at the end of the day, that's going to get you a better output, a better findings, better recommendations, something that that organization and stakeholders may be better aligned with and actually want to use and so on. And isn't that the end goal really? It's not it is, yes, evaluative rigor matters, good methodology matters, but is the end goal not that there's something there that people will use and it might actually lead to advancing social justice? Ideally. Ideally. I will also take it into a different corner of the universe. And adaptability for me means that you're willing and able you have the ability to change course on any number of things. Mm -hmm. This includes us as evaluators and we feel if we feel that our ethical moral obligation or commitment or values are being infringed upon this is really hard particularly for us we work as consultants so we rely on clients for money we rely on good projects being delivered being delivered so that we get repeat clients and we have a few of those thank you very much that is important to us. We need monies to live. The van is not running on dreams. But what we have had to do is think about what are our red lines as an organization, as individuals, and that we have the financial resilience, the emotional resilience, and courage to adapt to change direction if we need to, if we feel that what we're doing and what we're being asked to do is a violation of our principles in a substantive way. I've got one example of a project, six-figure contract that we had to walk away from midway through the project because there was just such a moral, ethical violation that we couldn't ignore. And we refused to keep going because that would have put our principles and our commitment to realizing and living those principles every day into question. And we didn't want to live like that. And we paid everybody out their contract to make sure that there was no financial burden to other people. But we simply refused to compromise and contradict our values even further than we were kind of being pushed to do that. Yeah, behind all of this, our values stand firm and the red lines. Absolutely. Yes, don't fuck with us. Whoa. That is the thing, right? That is a, 
a place of privilege, we were able to, yeah. we were in a position to do that. Taking it from another, there is the, the one angle of, yes, be willing to change course, be willing to look at the environment in front of you, the landscape in front of you and change what you're doing to make it suit the situation. But also the other side of that, which is I realize that the situation doesn't suit me and it doesn't fit with me living my principles, living my values, walking the line that I want to walk as an evaluator, as a human being on this earth. And then Adapting the other way. Yes. <laughs> Adapt your ass out that door. <laughs> I love it. So these are the strategies that we employ, the conversations we have to try and negotiate and navigate these feminist principles and approaches. Yeah. We've taken you on a bit of a journey <laughs> through how we've applied the approaches, the principles, the dilemmas we've come across, those trade-offs and tensions. And to reiterate, this is a huge ongoing conversation. We don't have all the answers. And this is really just for us to share with you some key lessons that we've come across. But we want to hear yours. If you resonate with any of these dilemmas, trade-off tensions, or you have your own feminist ethical dilemmas, we'd love to hear from you. So please do email those to us. Yeah, give us a shout. You can also find us at www.jrnyconsulting.com or you can find the details of how to reach us in the show notes. Yeah, and if your organization, you feel that you resonate with what we've said and you'd like to get in touch, maybe have a chat about some work. (laughs) (laughs) If you are down for the secret shopper idea. (laughs) Yes. Let's do it. (laughs) All right, well, I'm Tia. I'm Lauren. And this has been the Journey to Transformation. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.